0: Well, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. No matter how you found us, we are so glad that you are here. Here at Menlo Church, we believe that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. So let's go ahead and jump into today's message. Hey, brother, I know you're going through it. You know what it says in the good book? This too shall pass. It says in the Bible, cleanliness is next to godliness. So, clean up your life. Let me, let, me, let me find that for you. When God closes a door, He throws open a window. It's, it's in there somewhere. God works in mysterious ways. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone that isn't. Just take my word for it. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Well, to everyone at all of our campuses, those of you joining us online, we're so glad you're with us this weekend at Menlo Church. And in honor of Father's Day, I thought we'd start off our time by telling a dad joke. Is that okay? Can we do dad jokes here in church? Do you know what a dad joke is? A dad joke is when a dad tells a joke that's not even funny, but all the family and people around, they laugh to make him feel good about himself. So I'm going to tell a dad joke, And even if it's not funny, you all have to laugh, okay? All right, let's try this. So there's a man who has an opportunity to talk to God and ask him anything he wants. So he asks some questions that only God can answer. His first question is, God, a billion years, what is that like? So God says, oh, that's a good question, a billion years. For me, that's like one second. Man goes, wow. He goes, God, what about a billion dollars? What is a billion dollars like? God goes, ooh, billion dollars, that's like one penny. So the guy gets a little clever, a little smart, and he goes, ah, okay, well, God, can I have a penny? And God says, of course you can. Just give me a second. Dad <laughs> joke? Come on, let's do it. Okay, okay, maybe that story wasn't all that funny, but it's the perfect introduction because this weekend, we're taking a look at some of the common things we think God said, phrases that we misattribute to God or we think are in scripture, and it's important to look at some of these things because if our understanding and our view of God is off, even by just a little bit, it can become this major stumbling block in our ability to know him, worship him, and trust him. And the phrase that we're going to look at together this weekend, uh, like we said, is money is the root of all evil. How many of you have heard that one before? Money is the root of all evil. How many of you think this is in the Bible? How many of you think God said this, right? Well, it's actually in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's in a collection of letters uh, written by Paul to his younger friend Timothy in uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. But here's the thing. It's important whenever we read the Bible or when we study Scripture not to pull a verse or a phrase out of scripture and then use it to make a point. Because the the verses and the scriptures are part of a larger narrative, a bigger conversation that was written to a particular people at a particular time, oftentimes to address a specific situation. And so when we read the scriptures, we have to take context in mind. And if we just pull a phrase out like money is the root of all evil, it can be quite a dangerous misapplication of the Bible's true intention and meaning. If you just take that phrase alone, money is the root of all evil, it's pretty straightforward, and therefore we might think that money's a bad thing, it's evil, we should avoid it, stay away from money, warning, warning, warning. The Bible has a lot of things, actually, to say about money. There are a lot of warnings in the scriptures when it comes to money and our attitude towards money, but there's also a lot of wisdom as well. But if we take this sentence, money is the root of all evil, out of context, and we add to it some of the other warnings and admonitions that we find in Scripture, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that it's better to be poor than rich, that it's better to have less than more, that a life of poverty is more spiritual than a life of wealth. For instance, when we hear Jesus teach in the Gospels, he says that it's easier for a camel to walk through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And we can hear that admonition and we can say, oh, then being rich, being wealthy, that's a bad thing. I mean, it's next to impossible to enter into heaven if you have a lot of resources. Or what about the time when a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, observe all the commands. He says, well, I've done all those ever since I was young, ever since I was a youth. Then Jesus says, well, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, we can hear that and we can say, oh, my gosh, that must mean that having a lot of things, having a lot of riches or wealth is not good, that it's spiritually better to have less than more, that if you have too much, you might get into trouble with God. And here's the thing, some of us might actually believe this is true. Throughout church history, there have been a lot of saints and church leaders, people like Saint Francis and Mother Teresa, who took vows of poverty. And we look up to them and we put them on pedestals. Even John Wesley, the great founder of the Methodist Church, really struggled with this tension, the disparity between the rich and the poor. And there were were many people in his congregation who came from uh, very little means, but would acquire a fortune or would amass a great wealth, and then they would wander from their faith or they would stop coming to church. And so John Wesley was really concerned about this, and in one of his sermons, this is what he said, do you gain all you can and save all you can? then you must in the nature of things grow rich. Then if you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, give all you can. Otherwise, I can have no more hope of your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. Wow. John Wesley is giving advice to the people in his church, saying if you are acquiring great wealth, if you want to obtain salvation, you've gotta give it all away. Give it all away. And even today, in our world, we can look around at the disparity between the rich and the poor and we can become very uncomfortable or uneasy about riches and possessions. But here's the truth. Money, money is morally neutral. Money is God's idea, money is what God gives to his people, it's a blessing, but the idea that money and wealth are evil can still show up in our hearts and in our thinking in very dangerous ways. For instance, how many of you have ever resented someone who's wealthier than you? How many of you have ever had a judgmental thought towards somebody who drives a really nice car? or somebody who wears fancy clothing or lives in a really big house? How many of us have ever held someone like that in contempt? I had a friend in college who uh, bought a really nice sports car during our second year of school, and and even though I pretended to be really excited about his new car and impressed with it, inside my heart there was a very different reality happening, going on. I was feeling kind of judgmental toward him. I know you're probably thinking, Eugene, that's called jealousy, right? But it wasn't jealousy, because at the time, I was driving a 92 Honda Accord LX that had power windows and a CD player. You can't even get those anymore. You can't buy a car with a CD player, and I had one, right? But my friend, when he came to school with his new car, my mind went straight to judging the use of his resources. I thought, why does he need that car when he could just drive an Accord like me? What if he just saved his money to help the poor or to serve missionaries around the world? Doesn't he know that there's great need? And that's just naturally where my mind and my heart went. Has that ever been true of you? Have you ever gone to that place? Have you ever come across someone else's social media? Seen something that they posted online? Maybe they're showing a new purchase. Maybe it was a new car. Or maybe dinner at a fancy restaurant. You see, If we misunderstand the way God thinks about money and possessions, we can easily fall into the trap of resenting people who have a lot of it. And we can spiritually justify that feeling. Or worse, we might feel morally or spiritually superior to people who are wealthy if we just take the phrase, money is the root of all evil, and apply that to our thinking without really understanding what God thinks about money and possessions, we can go to some pretty extreme places. On one hand, uh, we can uphold the gospel of poverty, teaching that the way to be truly spiritual is to be poor. And then on the other hand, we can easily promote the prosperity gospel. Um, It's this idea that the good life is about using all of our money and possessions for our own happiness, and God wants us to be happy. And if we're really good Christians, he'll give us more of it. I think we all know that either extreme could be pretty dangerous. The the prosperity gospel, let's be honest, it's just greed covered under the veneer of religion. And the poverty gospel, that can be dangerous too because there's actually nothing spiritual about poverty. And there is no one that's actually become better off by becoming poor. Uh, Dallas Willard, who wrote The Spirit of the Disciplines, really wrestled with this dynamic as well, and he devoted an entire chapter to this. And in it, Dallas writes, the idealization of poverty is one of the most dangerous illusions of Christians in the contemporary world. Wealth is but a part of created reality pronounced by God as good. At the beginning of creation, God saw what he made and said, it's good, it's good. But like the body before redemption, the wealth of this fallen world usually tends toward evil this normal tendency can and must be removed through possession and purification by us its owners who live to see who live to see it submitted to god riches are not holy riches are not evil they are creations we are to use for god you see money is a valuable resource and it can be a great source of blessing to the world. We can use it to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to care for the needy, to heal the sick, to help those who are seeking spiritually find and follow Jesus. The money that we're able to generate together can be used to make our world and our communities better and healthy places. So if we we go back to Paul's letter, If we go back to what he wrote to Timothy and we read the full passage and not just take that phrase out of context, it gives us a more complete picture of what Paul is telling the church. And this is what he writes. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, Paul here is not warning Timothy about money. Paul is warning Timothy about the love of money about greed. Paul is saying watch out for greed. He says those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Paul says some people who are eager for money have wandered from the faith. Paul says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And Jesus gives a similar warning in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says watch out. Be on your guard against All kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What does Jesus mean when he says all kinds of greed? Well, both Jesus and Paul warn people about greed because greed is like a trap. It's hard to see in ourselves. And you don't have to be rich to fall into this trap. Paul says those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And you don't have to be rich to want to be rich. You can be poor and want to be rich. You don't have to be uh, wealthy to be eager for money. You don't even have to have a fortune to love money. Anyone, anybody, with a lot or a little, can be eager, can love money. And anybody can be controlled by greed. Anyone can be consumed with thoughts about money, how they're going to spend it, how they're going to get more of it, how they're going to use it, how they're going to protect it. You can have a very little amount and still fall into a trap like this. And that's how it works because we almost never see greed in ourselves. We look at what others have. We look at how others spend and we're often quick to pass judgment, but we never think that we're the ones who are greedy, that I'm the one that's wasting my resources or that I'm being selfish. And the reason why that's the case is because our hearts, our hearts are deceitful above all things. And instead of comparing what I have to the rest of the world that doesn't have nearly what I have, I tend to only compare what I have with people who have more than me. That's just the way that it works, and that's why it's hard to see in myself. I only compare myself to those who have more. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller describes greed like this. He says, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational impulses. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. Such people don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. In every case, money functions as an idol and yet because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. I think this is what Jesus means when he says, watch out for all kinds of greed, right? Keller is saying that money is just the tip of the iceberg. But beneath the surface, there are more likely deeper idols and motivations that are at work in our hearts. That's why Paul calls it the root, the root of all evils. It's hidden beneath the surface. It's not what we think it is all the time. In other words, someone who saves every penny and never spends any of it on themselves to feel secure, protected, and in control of their finances might be no less selfish than someone who spends carelessly on themselves to look attractive to others. When my wife Esther and I got married, I had just graduated from seminary. Uh, She was teaching second grade at the time, and between our student loans and our limited income, we had to live as a newlywed couple on a very tight budget. Uh, One night on our honeymoon, we went out to dinner, and to this day, I honestly, I don't remember what I ordered or what I ate, but I will never forget what my wife ordered, what Esther ordered that night. She ordered the lobster ravioli. (laughs) It was the most expensive item on the menu, and instead of saying, honey, what a great selection, you have such fine taste. (laughs) With a smile on my face, my heart was going to a place like, why would she order that? Does she not notice how expensive that is? Does she not realize that we're on a tight budget? I won't be able to have dessert, right? (laughs) We're on our honeymoon, we're married less than one week and already I'm judging my wife for ordering this expensive entree on the menu. But here's the thing, I was the one being greedy. In my heart, being frugal and controlling our budget and our finances and holding onto our money was my way of feeling secure. My deeper need to feel secure and in control of our finances was showing up at dinner on our honeymoon toward my wife. My own love of money, even though I didn't have a lot of it at the time, was the underlying root of why I was feeling so resentful that night. Next week, Esther and I, we're gonna celebrate 17 years of marriage. Guess what I'm gonna order her for dinner? lobster ravioli. (laughs) Recently, we were on a trip to LA and I had a chance to visit the Paul J. Getty Museum. Have you ever ever been to the Getty down in LA? It's an incredible art museum. It's located in one of the most beautiful and expensive neighborhoods in Los Angeles. It's named after Jean Paul Getty, who was a multi-billionaire. He was considered to be the richest living American at his time when he was alive. Uh, But despite his incredible vast wealth, getty was also known to be infamously notoriously frugal for instance in one of his mansions he installed a payphone so that anybody who wanted to make a call from his house would have to pay for it themselves (laughs) another time he was uh, with a group of friends he took them to london to go see a show and he had them walk around the block for 10 minutes so that the tickets could drop to half price after 5 p.m Right, we're talking about a billionaire here. Uh, recently, there was a movie that was made about Paul Getty in which one of his grandsons, this is a true story, was kidnapped and he was unwilling to budge on the ransom. Jean Paul Getty was one of the richest people in the world who ever lived, and yet he was incredibly frugal with his resources. And what I'm trying to get at is this you don't have to be rich to be greedy. And you don't have to be poor to be frugal. It's a trap. Anyone can be controlled by the love of money. That's kind of how this works, and that's why we have to watch out for it in our own lives and in our own hearts. The only way we can break free from this trap to deal with this, it's not by changing our view of money, our spending patterns. It's not behavior modification, actually. The only way we can break free from this trap is about examining our hearts. Our hearts have to be transformed, transformed by the grace of God. We have to deal with what's beneath the surface. We have to look at the roots, the deeper idols in our lives at a heart level. We have to deal with idols like control and security and acceptance. And on the surface, These things can appear to hold our place in our lives. I mean, maybe it's in the form of a job. Maybe my job is my security. Maybe a relationship I worship, it's my idol, it makes me feel accepted. Or maybe it's something we own. But the only way to break free from this is for God to become our ultimate hope and our ultimate love. When we understand that God gave us everything in his son Jesus, that he died to make us his own, then and only then will we be able to make him our own. Only then will money cease to be the currency of significance and security. Only then will we want to be truly generous and bless others with what we have received. That's the only thing that can break the power of greed over us. You see... My security is not in a bank account. It's in God's love and his acceptance. My identity is not found in my net worth or my investment portfolio. My identity is found in the fact that I'm a child of God and my father is a king. I don't have to be in control of my finances or worry about what other people think because I know what he thinks. I know what he thinks when he thinks about me. And if that's true, if that's true, and our security and our acceptance and our worth is not found in what we possess, but in a God who loves us, what more could we possibly ask for in this life? What more could we possibly want if that is true? Faith in Jesus changes everything. It changes everything in us and it changes us from the inside out. And when we get that, when we accept that and and understand that, money and greed, they, they lose their control, they lose their power over our lives. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters, right? If you serve money, you'll be consumed with it, you'll be consumed with greed and worry and anxiety, you'll just think about it all the time. If money is your God, ironically, it'll cost you everything to serve it. But if you love God, if God is your master and you serve him, you'll be free of those things like greed and anxiety and worry. And you'll be free, free to love and free to give and free to serve. And you'll be free to do all those things because you will know that he already paid the ultimate price to have you, to have you. Now, this is what Paul wants to steer Timothy away from, this trap, and he tells Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, contentment is recognizing that we come into the world, we come into this world with nothing, and everything we have is a gift from God. And if that's true, then our job is simply to steward everything we have, all the gifts that we've received. Our job is to manage the resources that God has entrusted to our care. And not only does God give us what we have, he also blesses us with the abilities and the skills and the talents to earn and acquire and achieve everything that we have. These days, when I think about, when I think about where I am today and, and everything I have, especially on a weekend like this, I can't help but to be grateful to my parents. As Korean immigrants, They moved to a foreign country, and they took on really tough blue-collar jobs so that one day maybe their kids would have an opportunity to go to a good school and get a really good education. And I received opportunity after opportunity in my life to become the person I am today, and I thank my parents for that, for their sacrifices, for their hard work, for their love, their commitment. But ultimately, I'm grateful to God. I'm grateful to my Heavenly Father because I could have been born to any set of parents. I could have been born at any period of time in any part of the world, and yet I was born where I was for a time such as this. I did not come into this world with anything. Everything I have is a gift, and one day when I leave this world, I will leave with nothing. On the contrary, my dad, my father, he was born five years before the Korean War. As a child, he lived and grew up in poverty. He lived in a country that was torn apart by war and destruction. When I was a kid and I didn't feel like waking up and going to school, my dad would tell us stories about how he had to walk miles and miles and miles to school in the snow, through blizzards, without shoes, carrying his books and his brothers and his sisters on his shoulders. You see, my dad, he grew up with very little. His sense of gratitude and stewardship were profoundly influenced by his journey and his life experiences. But today, it's his faith that's shaped his attitude toward his money and his possessions more than anything else. You see, he knows that he came into this world with nothing, that everything he has is a gift, and that one day when he leaves this world, he doesn't get to take any of it with him. Contentment is recognizing that we come into the world with nothing and that everything we have is a gift from God. And that's what Paul is explaining to his young friend Timothy. And Paul goes on to say in chapter 6, Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How does somebody get a life like that? How do you live a life that is truly living, that is truly life? Well right here Paul says this. He says you can live a life that is truly life by putting your ultimate hope, your ultimate love in God the Father. He says you can live life that is truly life by finding your identity in His great love and acceptance for you. You can live a life that is truly life by stewarding all the gifts and all the resources you have in a way that reflects his grace to you and his purpose for your life. So so later today, if you have a chance to talk to God, I hope that your conversation or your prayer with God will go something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for every second and every penny I have. More than a billion years or a billion dollars, I am grateful to have you in your love. Help me to use all of my time and all of my resources in ways that will reflect your goodness and your glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks on this day to be gathered in worship and to be able to experience and touch and feel and see and taste and be a part of all the incredible gifts that you pour into our lives. God, we are so grateful for who you are and what you've done and for the gift of your son. And so God, as we worship together in our hearts, may we know this truth to be real and may this truth transform all of us from the inside out so that our greatest gain, our greatest pleasure, our greatest joy is found in knowing you and nothing else. Lead us in this way, Jesus. We pray, amen. Well, I hope that that message was inspiring and challenging and it will cause you to look at Jesus a little bit differently. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to stay tuned with us, then please follow us on social media and have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.